0: The following is an audio sermon from Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. For more free audio content, search Sacred City Church in your iTunes store. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we've been going all the way through, right? We've been going from verse 1, chapter 1, all the way to now we're in the middle of chapter 4. Ephesians tells us, I love it, all right? It's about the people of God. It's about the church of God. Ephesians tells us a little bit of the story of God. It tells us that man, mankind, was created um, in the image of God, that he had dignity, value, and worth, that he was created to have communion and and relationship with God and then with other people. And then Adam and Eve, they completely jacked things up, right? Sin entered the picture, Um, all of creation fractured. All right, I got to, we were cutting down some, it was like 60 degrees a few days ago, right? So we were out cutting down the rose bushes in our yard, and I got to tell my, my son, Javin, why does these roses have thorns? And we, we talked through the, the Adam and Eve, that roses never had thorns before Adam and Eve sinned. Once sin entered the creation, everything fractured. Earthquakes could take place. Tsunamis could take place. Uh, um, there's division and bitterness and anger that could take place. All these things happened after the fall. So Paul now tells us this in Ephesians, that now God is on a mission to renew all of creation back to the way it used to be. He's renewing all the world, he's renewing all the earth, and he's even renewing us as individuals. That's the purpose, to bring things back into unity with Jesus Christ, and he's using Jesus Christ to renew all of creation. And he started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, When Jesus Christ died and was brought again to new life, he came in a new created body. It was new, it was different. The firstborn of the new creation, scripture tells us. So if you've been around, I mean, in America, I'm sure you've probably heard the term born again, right? Jesus uses the term in the gospel um, about being born again. I'm sure you've heard about born again believers. And just what does that mean? Last week we unpacked it a little bit. We talked about when a person comes to faith, they come as a baby. And they're literally spiritually born again. But what does that really look like? In Ephesians chapter four, Paul uses this language. He doesn't say born again. He uses the language of a new self. You get a new self. All right, he's saying put off old self, put on a new self. What does that mean? What does it mean to get a new self? How do we really? And this is this is what it's all about. How do we really change? How do we really change? I'm sure you've heard stories about people, you know, getting religious and changing their life. He got religion, right? What does it mean? Can people really change? There's a lot of people out there that say no. About 10 years old, you're set. Maybe even younger than that, you're set. You're not gonna change. Your personality's set, your affections are ch- set, your th- way of thinking are set, and you're not gonna change. And some of us today struggle with this. We push back on this. We've got some things in our life that we're not quite happy with. We've got some sins or problems or issues going in our life that we're not satisfied with, and we want to change. And every year about this time, right, some of us make some resolutions. This year, I'm going to the gym this year. starting now, right? And it works for about a week. huh. Or I'm, I'm going to stop gossiping. I'm going to stop, you know... Backbiting. I'm going to stop putting all my attention on what I wear and the, and the things of this earth. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to be just, I'm going to be more satisfied. I'm going to be content. And it lasts about about, about now, All right, About 14, 15 days It's usually what it lasts. Some of us that are real disciplined, maybe you can get to May, all right? But so, so, is there hope? Can a person really change? For you? <laughs> This is, this is obviously a great topic for uh, the married folk in the room, right? Who are still praying that their husband would pick up their clothes off the, off the floor and put them in the ha- it's like It's like right, the hamper's there. Your clothes are here. Can we, can we make the eight, eight feet distance here? Can we pick them up and put them on, right? You're still hoping for some change in your spouse. You're still hoping for some cha- change in your kids. We're still hoping for some change in us. Well, is that change really possible? Well, it is. Through the power of the gospel... Through the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a way to change. I'm going to say there is a Christian way to change. And it's not like you think it is, okay? We're going to, we're going to check this out, um, three, and we're going, to, we're going to discover three things about the new self. And that's just a weird term, all right? I'm going to use some terminology that's going to seem weird to us because it's biblical, it's a little archaic, and it's just going to seem weird. But I want you to know, in all of antiquity, the philosophers used to talk about putting off pride, and put on humility. Well, they didn't say that one, actually. Put off um, um, lust and put on love. Put off laziness and put on diligence. The philosophers used to say, put off these attributes and put on good attributes. But never in antiquity is there ever anyone saying, put off an identity and put on a new identity. Put off an old self and put on a new self. This is entirely unique to Christianity. But it's the key to how God changes us and how the gospel changes us as individuals. So we're going to check this out. In, in theology, we call this change regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration and sanctification. And We're going to unpack that a little bit. So we're going to see three things about the new self and the old self. All right. Uh, and I'm, or when we change from the new self from the old self, I'm going to. And I've got there. Have you, I think I've got them there in your. Uh, version notes. Number one, and I'll unpack these later, but number one, change requires a conscious choice, a deliberate decision, okay? Number two, it's a new identity before it's new behavior. And number three, and I don't really like how I said this, but I couldn't figure out a better way to say it. It's an upgrade in your imagination. It's an upgrade to your imagination. So let's look at, at Ephesians chapter 4 together. And I want to ask this question to you. Why do we even need a new self? Put on a new self, put off an old self. Why? Why do we even need a new self? Let's start in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. When you're there, say there. All right. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, I want you to do something with me real quick. You got your finger there. I want you to flip back two chapters and look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Okay, real quick. This is important. I'm going to go. I'm going to read. Therefore, remember... That at one time you were, you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh. Stop right here. This is why I wanted to go back. I I wanted to remind some of us that when he says, Paul's saying, don't walk like Gentiles. He's speaking to Gentiles. Okay, what are Gentiles? There's Jewish and there's Gentiles. Gentiles are people that that are not the Jewish faith. Unless you're Jewish in this room, you are a Gentile. Okay, you are what... In the Old Testament, you have been considered an outsider of the people of God. And he's telling these people who are new converts to the faith, they've been uh, recreated anew, he's saying don't walk the same way the culture shaped you before. So today, for us, I would say, you're American, you're in this culture, but God says don't let that culture shape you into a certain type of people. Don't walk... Like an American. Don't walk like a Gentile. That's what he's saying. Now, what, what does he mean by that? That can kind of sound offensive. What does he mean by that? He's saying that's the old life, and now you've got a new you. There's three things that we see through in verses 17 through 19, and this is going to get. This is what I'm saying. I don't like to preach this stuff. Like, come on, give me something happy to preach. But this is, what, this is what the Bible says about us before we come to Christ. This is what the Bible says about people who are not believers, people who are unbelievers or outside the Christian faith. This is what the Bible says about them, 17 through 19. Number one, we had a dark. we have or we have a darkened understanding. Number two, we have a hard heart. Number three, we have callous behavior. You can see all those things through 17, through 18. They're darkened in their understanding. Look at this. They're alienated. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality. Now, I want you to think about this. The Bible talks a lot about sin like an addiction, Sin takes us over. Sin can control us from our birth. We're born in sin. I want you to think of these terms, what I just said, that we have a darkened understanding, we have a hard heart, we have callous behavior. Think of this in the the realm of addiction. If you've ever seen any of these shows on television about people that struggle with addiction, you'll recognize this. Number one, they get a darkened understanding. Drugs darken their understanding, right? It changes what they view as valuable. They no longer see relationships as valuable. They no longer see uh, a, a bettering society as value. They no longer see the good in those things. They just want to consume. They just need more of that drug. And then what happens? They get a hard heart. They start, I mean, you, you, and, then, and then callous behavior. You see this like this, this progression, right? This black hole that they fall into where, you know, you, you have grandma on the, on the screen crying because it's her little, you know, her baby grandson that she loves so much, and she raised him up, but now he's stealing the, their precious things from their house to go sell, to buy drugs. It, it didn't start there. It didn't start there. It started way back with just a darkened understanding, just not being able to see things clearly. I think it'd be fun to take a hit. I think it'd be fun to step into this sin. I think it'd be fun. You see it with Pornography. One of the scariest, I don't want to miss this, but one of the scariest documentaries, and I might be messing this up, that I've ever seen was on, I think it was on Ted Bundy. Raised in a Christian home. And he started getting into pornography. And it started out small, and then it got deeper, and it got deeper, and it got deeper. And then he needed more, and he needed more. Just like an addiction. Just like all sin does. He needed more, he needed more. And then all of a sudden, one day, the thought was, what if I acted on this? What if I actually did some of this stuff? And before long, raping, killing women, and I mean, as dark and as depraved as you can think. But it didn't start there. It started with something simple. It started with a darkened understanding. I wonder what it would be like. It starts with a darkened understanding. That's where sin starts. That's where we start as human beings. We're not born new. When, we, when we're born as a little baby, we're sinners. That's why we teach our children <laughs> We don't have to teach our children to be naughty, right? They are excellent at that on their own, right? We teach them how to be obedient. We teach them how to love and serve their siblings because that is not natural, right? So sin is like an addiction. It darkens our understanding, hardens our heart, and then creates callous behavior in us. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, this might sound incredibly offensive, okay? But I want you to take a minute and think about it, okay? When Paul says... that unbelievers walk, and all of us, when we, were unbelie- when we were an unbeliever, when we walked in the futility of our mind. Futility literally means pointlessness, all right? Meaninglessness. That unbelievers walk in meaningless, Every this is crazy, everything they try to do is pointless and meaningless. Their life can have no meaning outside of God. That's difficult. That's rough. But I want you to just take a minute and think about it. Before you throw something at me, hear me out. I'm just repeating what the Bible says, and this is, I want you to think about it. Even scientists today, right, are saying that creation, that all of the world had a beginning. It had a beginning point. Sometime there was nothing, and then something happened. And, and, and sometime in the future, scientists say, there will be nothing again. The earth will fade away, things will burn up, or, or galaxies will explode, or whatever. That there, it was, and then there will not be. So I want you to think about this. If, there, if, if the end of everything we know is coming, scientists would say this, right? We're going to get too close to the sun, or something's going to happen, and we're all going to burn up. How can anything on this earth, anything that we do, have ultimate meaning? If everything you live your life for, everything you work for, everything you toil under the sun for, one day will burn up into oblivion, how could anything have meaning? So that's the framework the Bible comes at. He says, because God is the only uncreated creator, he's the only thing that's eternal, he's the only thing that will go on and on and on, your life and my life can only have meaning in God. Our life in relation to God is the only way our life can have meaning because it's the only thing that's eternal. That's the way, that's the biblical framework, that's a Christian outlook, that's a Christian worldview, that's what the Bible teaches. God infuses all of our life with meaning. But if you don't know God, none of your life will have meaning and everything you have will be taken from you. Everything you worked for will be gone. You are, as Paul says in this text, alienated from the life of God. Alienated. You're separated from eternal life. You're separated from the life of God. I was reading uh, the brothers uh, Karamazov this weekend, and in it, the father says something to the effect. He says, if you take away immortality you take away all reason for morality if you take away immortality you take away all reason for morality this is where our culture sits today if there is no god if nothing is eternal if all the world will burn up one day and be gone then what gain is there in sacrificing for someone else what gain is there in in humility If everything's going to be gone, you might as well live for today. You might as well gain as much as you can get today. You might as well fight, scratch, and, and, and just, I mean, work, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do to your neighbor. It doesn't matter what you do to your brother. You better get as much as you can get today because that's all you've got. Everything else is meaningless because when you die, it's over and it's gone. That's where our culture sits today. If there is no immortality, if there is no God, humility is not a virtue. Pride is a virtue. Pride is the virtue that will help you get one up on others. Don't work at a lifetime of love with one person. Trade up as soon as things get difficult. Because Paul's going to teach us later on in the next chapter that marriage is like Christ in the church, that it shows us something about God, that a husband and a wife lay each other down. They sacrifice their desires for each other. It's mutual humility. It's mutual sacrifice, the way Christ does for the church. The way Jesus gave up his body, men and women give up their body, and they give up their wants, and they give up their needs, and they give up their desires to each other. But our culture says, no. Get what you can get today. Be married for 27 days, and if it doesn't work out, just pull the trigger, man. Pull the eject button, and just start over. Because we have no... view of immortality. We have no concept of God and eternal life. So this is why we're, cal- we're callous, we're sensual, and we're greedy about it all. This is why every- we, we fight and scratch and claw to get as much as we can in this life. That's what the Bible says that's just what you do. If you're an unbeliever, that's just what you do. It's just what we have done. So that is why we need a new self. We don't need to be talked out of it. We can't, you can't change your mind. We don't need, you know, some better counseling methods. We need an entirely new self. Because our mind is alienated. We're we're pushed away from the life of God and we need something completely new inside of us. But how do we get it? How do we get this life? Now, this is where things are gonna get a little tricky. I want you to look at verse 22. Verse 22. How do we find this life in God? How do we get this new self? Look at verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 24, let's skip 23 for right now. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now listen, this part is where I was like, man, do I really need to share this because this is gonna, I'm a little egg-headed. It's gonna sound a little, uh, um, cognitive, a little out there, but listen, we know present past tense, right? We get that in our English language. Well, this is written in Greek, okay? And Greek has something called the aorist tense, tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist tense. We don't have it anything like this in our language, all right? Most languages actually don't have it. It's unique to Greek. This tense is very hard to translate into human words, all right? So this scripture says this, It says, to put off your old self. That sounds like something that I need to continually do. Put off your old self. And you maybe even heard this preached um, in a poor way that says, all right, put off, put on, put off, put on. Every single day, you need to, like you put on clothes and you you take off clothes. You need to put on the new self. You need to put on the mind of Christ. You need to put on these things and you need to march out in the world. You need to take off the old self you need to put on the new self. That is not what this teaches at all. The aorist tense, this was written in in the Greek. This is what it means. Listen. This is used, uh, it signifies, look at this, a single, past, finished action. A single, past, finished action. It's not something that is ever done more than once. This is huge for us to understand what Paul is teaching us about the new self. Number one, Paul is teaching to Gentiles who have already done this. They've done it once. When you come to Christ, number one, it is a cognitive decision. It is a conscious choice. It is a deliberate action, and it's done once. It's finished. When you come to Christ... What happens is, I mean, God reveals something to you. You see the darkness of your sin. You see the light in the face of of Jesus Christ. You come to him. You accept him as your Lord and Savior. And it's done once. It's finished. You've put on the new self. It is not something you go back to if you sin and you fall short and you mess up. Well, I better put it back on again. No, 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 no. You have been changed once and for all. You've been recreated anew. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, and now you've been made alive by God. It's a conscious choice. It happens once. This is going to be crucial for us to understand what's going on here. If you've accepted accepted Christ, if you've repented and placed your faith in him, you've been made new. You are a new creation. What the heck does that mean? We're gonna find out. <clears throat> so it's important for us to recognize this is this is like this is a universal reality, all right? This might sound a little proud. It might sound a little narrow. The Bible's got a narrow view of humanity, but yes, it does. It's got a narrow view, but it's correct. Those outside of Christ are darkened in their understanding. Their life is futile, and and and. That's one, of the, that's one of the attractions to draw us to Christ. There's meaning. There's eternality there. It's going to go on forever. The, the loved ones that I have that are in Christ, that I get to share communion with them in the new creation, in heaven, that the work that I do for God and for his kingdom on this earth, the relationships I have, that they're going to go on in eternity. It's a benefit. It's, it's something beautiful about Christianity. So we didn't know it. These people didn't know it. Paul's... Paul's writing past, you you didn't know, we didn't walk around like, man, I'm incredibly futile right now. My mind is completely darkened. Well, none of us knew that. We don't know. But once once the light comes on, once the the veil is removed and we see Christ and we see the way we used to live, we get it. Everything I was working for was was about me. So number one, it, it, it starts with a conscious choice. Okay, God does the work and then it we choose him. So there comes a time when God makes us new and we then respond, which is with a conscious choice and choose him. For me, this was my senior year of high school. Okay? My senior year of high school, through a bunch of circumstances, um, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. All right? I went from a dead high school student that my whole world was about me, and God recreated me. All right. I was born as a spiritual baby, my senior year in high school. All right. Now listen. This is but but then how does change happen, Justin? How does you you talked last week? You're born as a spiritual infant, but how do we grow up? What does change look like? Now listen. This is critical. Second point: this new self is a new identity before it's a new behavior. This new this new self is a new identity before it's a new behavior. Like I said earlier, that the term "put on a new self" is completely foreign completely unique to Christianity, and this is where you see really the uniqueness here, because listen, most people, when, they, when you talk about Christianity, this is what they think, moralism. They think becoming a Christian means changing my behavior. Becoming a Christian means I become moral now. He got religion. He became moral. He won't go drinking with us anymore, Right? He won't go out. He won't have a good time. He won't do these actions anymore. It's all about behavior. Becoming a Christian is all about behavior. That is not Christianity. That is not the foundation of our faith. That is not primary. Primarily, getting a new self is getting an entirely new identity. It's about being something before it's doing something. It's a change in you It's a change in inside, internally, in who you are, not just what you do. All right? And listen, for those of you who like to do stuff, you 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 know, maybe you are a pretty good moralist, you just want a list of things to check off and and you're gonna feel good about yourself. That's coming next week, okay? Verses 25 through 31, Paul goes off on. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't be angry anymore in your sin. Don't, I mean, serve your brother. Love your, I mean, he's gonna go on all these different things to do. But he's telling us something very specific about how a Christian change, how God changes us through his Holy Spirit. He's saying this, you don't get to go to behaviors before you get a new identity. You've got to understand the identity first. You've got to understand who Christ has made you to be and then behavior will flow out of that. This is the most common mistake people have with Christianity. I think it's primarily about becoming moral. It's not about becoming moral. Last week we said it's not about becoming nice, it's about becoming new. Listen, this is how you know. This is how you know if someone makes this uh, incorrect assumption. You ask them, Are are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Many times in, in counseling people, this is what they say I'm trying. Are you a Christian? I'm trying, it, it shows they have a foundational misunderstanding of what it means to be Christian. They need to listen to Yoda, okay? It's do or do not. There is no try, all right? I was going to use my Yoda voice, but I decided not to there. all right? There is no try. Listen, it's like, listen, this, this is what it's like saying. Are you, are you married? I'm trying. Are you a husband? Man, I'm trying. It doesn't make sense. But when you ask someone, are you a Christian, it's natural for them to say, man, I'm trying. Uh, you know, I got some stuff I need to iron out. I got some things I need to work on. But boy, I'm working hard at it. It's a foundational misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean primarily that you become a moral person. Listen, Christianity goes off on this, okay? I'm just going to be honest. The Bible goes off on this. Anybody can be moralistic. Anybody can can change the outside of the cup, as Jesus would say to the Pharisees. Anybody can wash the outside of the cup and have a sinful internal heart. Christianity is about changing internally first. So God changes us in our heart. He changes us in our identity before he changes the outside of our stuff. So you got men that just want to, I just want to be done with porn. I just want to be done with porn. And they come to me and they say, just just fix me. I just want to be done. No, 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 no. I can't get rid of this outside of the stuff until God changes your heart. Something's got to go internally first. There's a reason you're, you're drawn to that. It's internal first. You're lying. There's an internal reason you're lying. You don't know who you are. You're trying to please other people. You're afraid you're going to let them down. You're afraid, or what, what are they going to think about you? So the fear of man causes you to lie. It's internal. It's heart issue. It's more than just fruit stuff. It's more than just, well, I got a little problem with gambling. Or, I got a no, it's something deeper than that. Christianity says this is, this is where it gets bad. I love it because moralistic people, they love repenting about like the things that they do. Yeah, I kind of told that guy off, so I repented about it. And they don't see the heart behind it. Being a Christian is about repenting for why you do the things you do. Not just what you do. You sinned, but why? It's, a, it's as much about why you do them as what you do. This is where you see a huge difference between moralism and being a Christian and the gospel. Being a Christian changes our motives, changes our identity. Let me show you this in parenting. Okay, Tim Keller uses this um, example quite a bit where we try to, because we don't understand the gospel, we try to shape our kids into certain types of people. We just want them to be good moral kids. We want them to be moral. We're not teaching them the gospel many times. We're teaching them to be moral. And we're trying to change behavior without changing the heart. Much of counseling today is that. We don't want to tra- we're not trying to change the heart. We just want to change behavior. So this is what it looks like. Uh, much of parenting is done through two things, through the use of fear and the use of pride. So fear, we say stuff like this. We tell our kids stuff like this. Now listen, if you keep doing this, you're gonna wind up in jail someday. You keep doing this, right? Like, the reason I want you to stop is because I don't want you to run out on the road and get ran over and smashed like a little squirrel in the street. And our kids are like, oh, right? We're using fear to get a certain behavior. Now listen, there's many preachers that do this. God does not do this. They use fear of judgment, fear of hell. God's gonna get you, blah, 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 blah. And and that's supposed to cause me to have some kind of affection for God, being scared that I'm gonna be sent to hell for eternity. Hell is real. But it's not, it's not, honestly, it's not a good motivator to get people to accept Christ. It's a horrible motivator. What kind of father do I have if, I'm, if I go to him like any second now he could send me off into the abyss? But we use it on our kids often. We use this fear. If you keep doing these behaviors, son, you're gonna wind up, you're going to wind up doing this and it's going to be really bad for you. Or the second thing we use... And you know what? We can do this in counseling, too. We can do this in counseling. You're sitting across a person, and this is where you know you've, gotten, you've become moralistic. You're talking to someone that, that you can tell their life has jumped the rails, and they're heading for a bad time. They're about to leave their wife. They're about to leave their husband. Um, uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're in drugs. Maybe, who knows what's going on? But their life has jumped the rails, and you start saying, do you see what's going on here? If you keep doing this, this could happen to you. If you keep doing this, you could go to prison. If you keep doing this, you could do this. Do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this? And we just keep and they see it. They get it. But you're trying to change behavior. You're trying to use fear as a motivator, and that won't work on the heart, like the human heart. So another way we use, another thing we use is pride. This one we're especially good at. Son, I don't want you to lie or steal. Because if you do, you'll be a liar and you'll be a thief and you'll be like those people downtown. And we don't like those people. We live up here. That's not our family. You don't want to be one of those people. Right? We say that. Like, if you do this, son, you're going to be like that type of person. And you don't want to be like that type of person. What's this doing? Look at this. Tim Keller says it's jury-rigging jury the heart. So it, it, it's going in and, and using the heart in a wrong way. So what it's saying, this is what it's typically doing. I like to say it's, it, it's a serpent that gets swallowed by a dragon, okay? Because pride is the worst of all sins. The Bible talks about the, the pride was the fall of, of, of Satan. Pride is the worst of all sins, so pride is a dragon that swallows a serpent. You got a kid that's, that's lying or, or maybe that's, that's stealing something, and you, you teach him how to be really proud to defeat his, his stealing and, and, and lying. You're, you're jury-rigging his heart. So one day, this is what happens. One day, so he's learned, this, it's entirely self-centered. It's entirely, you don't want to be like that. You don't want to be like that type of person, so be good. Be a good moral person so you're not like that. You don't want to be like one of those people. So he learns to be completely self-centered, but one day it happens. Telling the truth won't pay off for him. So what does he do? Well, I'm going to lie. It's going to get me into school. It's going to get me a better grade. He doesn't see a negative consequence to lying. He doesn't see, well, this is just going to make me a better person. It's just the easy thing to do. It's just I've got to do it. I've got to get the promotion or I've got to get into that school. Or, so he lies. Or he does something crazy. And, and, and then parents like to say this, that's not who we raised you to be. Yes, it is. You raised him to be completely self-centered. You raised him to focus on his pride to change his behavior. That is who you raised them to be. You see this with girls all the time, completely insecure. Parents don't know how to deal with the insecurity. So the wisdom of our age says she needs larger breasts. So parents buy their kids larger breasts. And now, as a friend of mine says, right, you have insecurity with six-inch heels and larger breasts. You jury-rigged the heart. You've manipulated the heart to get a certain type of behavior. That's not real change. She's still insecure. He's still proud. He's still self-centered. It's not real change. It's not lasting change. It's not the way God changes us. See, real Christian change is at the heart level, but it's completely eternal, internal. It's a change of identity that affects our motives. When God changes us into our new self, we change and we grow, listen, out of grace, we grow out of love, and we grow out of humility. Not pride or fear. It's about delight. Listen to that. Christian growth is about delight. It's about joy. It's not about duty. It's not about fear. It's not about, I better obey or I'm going to be like them. It's out of love. It's out of humility. It's out of joy. This is a huge difference between moralism and Christianity. You can be moral but not loving. You can be moral and cold. You can be moral and proud of your morality. Morality does good things, and then it applauds itself. That is not true righteousness or holiness that Scripture speaks of. It's just self-centered moralism. And, And the Bible says, to become a Christian, God does something internally to change your heart. He changes you into an entirely new person. He's not talking about just behavior. He changes your affections. He changes your desires. He changes what you want. Listen, this is what happened. This is what happened for me. When I came to Christ, all right. When God saved me, this is what. This is what's so weird. I, I used to say my entire life changed, but it didn't. My life just shifted. I was incredibly self centered. I was. It, my whole life was about what I could produce. Was about being productive was about doing things, was about being seen as strong, being seen as a leader, being seen as a go-getter. My whole life was shaped by those things, all right? I was a wrestler in high school, and then I went on and wrestled in college. My whole life was consumed by what I could do and how I could dominate, how I can control another person, literally, on the wrestling mat, and how I can control my circumstances, and my life was built by that. And when I came to faith, I used to say my whole life changed, but it didn't. It just shifted. My affection for that, I still craved control. I still craved power. I still craved strength. But I realized I could find, and this is, this is not going on cognitively, okay? We didn't, I didn't know this. My mind was darkened at the time. I didn't see this, but now I do see it. <clears throat> Frederick Nietzsche said that all truth is a, is, a, is a claim at power. It's a grab at power. And I realized to be really strong is to be right. If you're right, then you've got ultimate power. So everything in my life became about being right. So I, I studied scripture and I wanted to be real religious and be real moral because I wanted to be right and I wanted to have power. I, again, not cognitively, but this is what my heart craved. This is the idol that my heart wanted to worship. And then God, the way he works, I, he created me a new person, but then he starts working on your heart and he starts changing you from the inside out and it's a gradual process, and the first step is all of a sudden you see what I thought was good. I realize it's sin. I used to say, what's wrong with all those lazy people? Why don't they get up and get a job? What do you mean you can't figure out? Just stop doing it. Get some self-discipline. Come on, get a job, work hard. Be a good man, be a good husband. It's not that difficult. And I had jerry-rigged my own heart to be a self-centered moralist. And I didn't see that I was doing it all to avoid Jesus Christ. What? How are you trying to avoid Jesus Christ? How did Jesus Christ come to this earth? He came in humility. He came in weakness. He came in a stable. He came poor. And then he ended his life in the ultimate Humility. Naked, hanging on a cross. All power his, all authority his, but he doesn't call on it. He doesn't use it. He lays his life down for us. Out of love for us. I started seeing to reject weakness like I was doing was rejecting Christ. All of a sudden, I started having to repent over the things that I thought I was doing that were good I realized that my heart was incredibly self-centered in them. I was doing them out of pride. I was doing them out of fear. I was doing them to earn an identity, and not receive an identity from Christ. So, how does this work? The third part, the third point, I want you to see is it's an upgrade to your imagination. And I'll be—I'll admit that I didn't like—I don't like that phrase very well. But I don't know how to describe it um, any better than that. So, I just want you to look real quick at verse twenty-three. <clears throat> and to be renewed, so let's start in 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which you do once when you receive Christ, but then this, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and then again, and to put off the, and put on the new self, okay? Um, this, we're, we're, since we're talking about tenses, this is a progressive tense, okay? This is a present progressive, means it continually happens. So, this is where we have something to do. All right, or this, or this is actually the spirit works in us. This is what happens. We put off our old life. We put it off. We accept Christ. We get this new self. And then we do this. We are constantly being renewed. And this is the weirdest phrase of this text that I spent literally a lot of time. I've I read, I, one of my mentors has got a whole sermon just on this one little text that I read through. We're renewed. We're being renewed, constantly being renewed in the spirit of our mind. In the spirit of our mind, what the heck does that mean? In the spirit of our mind. I'm wrestling with this all night long. I'm praying about it. I'm like, what in the world? Listen, it does not mean just a change in thinking. It's not a cognitive thing, all right? There's something deeper. There's something more. It's a pathway of thinking. It's a whole, it's the way our thinking is controlled. It's the the attitude of the mind that we have going into life. He says, when you put off your old self and you put on the new self, the Spirit of God begins working on you, renewing you from the inside. And the way he does that is he changes, and this is the way I want to say it, it he changes your imagination. You begin to see things differently. Everything, not just a few things, not like you've got this new little box in your head for religion. And this is my little Christian box where I memorize Christian things. It changes your whole imagination so everything you look at in life now, you see through a Christian view, you see through a biblical lens. And this is how you know if you went from being a moralist to a Christian, is it changes your entire realm of thinking. So you watch movies in a Christian way. You go to the bar in a Christian way. You work out in a Christian way. What does that mean? You parent in a Christian way. It changes your entire viewpoint. Your entire imagination. Being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 is a parallel verse. I'm going to read it real quick because he puts it a little simpler in Colossians 3, uh, 9 and 10. He says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. It's done in the past with its practices. And look, and you've put on the new self, it's done. It's done which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're being renewed. We've put it off. If you are a Christian, if you put your faith, that's happened. You are a new creation. You went from dead to life. That's happened. That's finished. That's done. But now, this is where growth happens. As we live in community with one another as we're on mission, as we read scriptures, as we pray, as we commune with the Father, as we do these things, the Spirit of God changes our thinking. We begin to, th- we begin to put on the mind of Christ. Our mind begins to re- be renewed, and we get to see things, all of creation, with a different viewpoint. When, uh, when this kind of dropped, I had some brothers, some Christian brothers who were praying for me and we were talking about some things and I was talking about, and, and they, they affectionately labeled my old self the wrestler. They would just label it the wrestler. Like that's how I approached everything. I'd walk into the room and I was the wrestler. I would, I would check people out and I would see where their weakness was and I'd be like, I know how to take them down. And I would, I would, I would approach problems the same way. I would approach challenges the same way. It's something where I can prove my worth. It's something where I can dominate. It's something where I can, I can control and I can feel good about myself. It's something I can do. And they affectionately labeled that old self as the wrestler. And I remember I was praying and I was done. I was finished with it. I was, re- I was ready. My heart was so hardened, I was calloused. That's what sin does. It harden, darkens our understanding, hardens our heart, callous behavior. I didn't know what it was like. Listen, this is how moral I was and how religious I was. And you, you can take this as a grain of salt, but um, I, hadn't had a, I hadn't had a drink of alcohol, or I'd never drank a beer in like 10 years, a decade of my life, because I don't do that. I don't do that. I'd never been to a bar. Never had a beer at a bar with, with a buddy. I used to, uh, this is, I'm not saying these things are for everybody, but whatever, but I used to, I used to you know in college, so I'd smoke a cigar, but once I became a, a, a pastor, I, I can't do those things. What if someone saw me? They would think you're human, right? But I wasn't. I was a robot. I was a moralist, and I had a hard heart. It really hit me when my daughter was born. This is going to sound terrible, but it's the truth. We found out, we're in the ultrasound room, we find out it's a daughter. And my wife looks at me, and I could tell she's reading my face. And I was like, my mind was made up. I was like, my son needs a wrestling partner. What the heck? What is, this, what is this girl? I didn't think I could produce girls. Literally, no, literally, all right? Like, literally, like I'm thinking, like, dang, a girl. No, no, babe, I'll be happy about it. I'll be happy about it. Just give me a minute. Just, I got to process this. Like, give me a minute. Like, I, I was hardened. My heart was hardened. I was a leadership junkie. But emotionally, something was broke in me. Man, you give me 10 things to do, and I'll get them done in record time. You want me to prove my worth by how productive I can be and how good of a leader I can be? I can do it all day long. But when it comes to being a human, when it comes to showing weakness, when it comes to being real, I don't know what that's about. And I was praying, and I literally, in my mind... You know, I didn't see a vision or anything like that. But in my mind, I, I went up and I said, I want to lay the wrestler at the foot of the cross. God, I want to give him to you. I want to be done with that old man. And I want to I walk in the, I want to be, be who you've created me to be in Christ. That's who I want to be. And I remember my, my brothers were like, okay, do you want to repent over, over that? <laughs> over like, that's called sin. Do you want to repent over that? And I was like, ooh, hold on. And I was like, literally, it took me probably 10, 15 minutes to process it because I realized how deep that rabbit hole went, how the wrestler affected all of my relationships, how it affected the way I approached all of life, and I realized just how difficult it was gonna be. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. After 10 minutes or so, I said, I'm ready, I'm ready to do this. And I just prayed. I said, Father, take him, whatever. And um, I remember, again, kind of seeing this in my mind's eye, that Jesus, I literally asked him, I said, if I'm not the wrestler, then who am I? That's not me. I don't even know how to live. That's how I know to live. I know how to I I get my identity from what I do. What am I supposed to do? Like, who am I now? And this this is what, I will say, this is what Jesus said to me, okay, in my mind, but it's scripture, so that's how I know it's accurate. Jesus said, you're my loved and forgiven son, and whom I'm well pleased. You're my loved and forgiven son. And this is, I preached, the, I preached the gospel for 10 years before that. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. I've been preaching that for a decade. I get that. But who am I? Like, come on, give me something better than that. And he said, clear as day to my mind, he just said, when you're that, nothing else matters. When you know who you are in Christ, when you know that your identity is in my loved and forgiven son, nothing else matters. And since that moment, it was probably a year and a half ago, I've, I've been able to prove that over and over and over, that God did something in my soul, in my heart, internally, that I could not work out. And he changed me legitimately as a person. And if you don't believe me, you can talk to my my wife. You can talk to my missional community. You can talk to the people that are close to me that I am a completely different person. Completely different. But I couldn't make it happen. I tried. I remember hitting the wall in my leadership and I remember having people in my office and be like, how do I change? Tell me what to do. What do you want me to do? I couldn't do it. God had to do it in my heart. Through the power of the gospel, that's where real change happens. It happens, and, and so our imagination gets completely captured by Christ. So now, I'm so overwhelmed at what Christ has done for me. I'm so overwhelmed that he was humble, that he was poor, that he was weak, that his weakness captures me, and it frees me to be weak. It frees me to be weak. That's how it works. Our minds, our imagination gets captured by the beauty of Christ. Not our own performance, not our own morality. So I'm gonna ask you today, are you captured by the beauty of Christ? Do you see him more valuable than stockpiling wealth? Do you see him more valuable than a cute girl on your arm? Do you see him more valuable? Do you see him the greatest treasure to ever walk this earth. This quote was from my commentary. It says this, Christianity is not something you just take up intellectually. It's something that takes us up and captivates us and governs us and controls us. Listen, morality is too small to change your life don't hear, if you're not a believer in this room, if you're not a Christian, don't hear that I'm calling you into morality. That's so weak. Morality does two things. It either puffs you up with pride or it kills you with despair. You're either like me and you can actually, you know, be real self-disciplined and you're the type A type of person and you get really proud or you're the type of person that just says, screw it, I can't do it. And it just, you just buried under a weight of despair. That's what morality does. gospel is entirely different. Christ performed for us. When Adam sinned in the garden, the mind of man was cursed. What happens? Listen, well, this is what it means. Man can be brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But blind to the things of God. We marvel at creation and then turn a blind eye to the creator. How crazy is that? The one who built it all, the one who created it all, the one who made it all for his glory and our joy, we can say, wow, the Grand Canyon, it's amazing. Ah, God's boring. Moralism has taught us that. We walked outside the other night. It was so weird, man. It's like, you got to see the moon. So I go outside, and there's this enormous like, halo around the moon. She'd already looked it up on the internet. She pulled the real smart card. She's like, yeah, it's because there's not enough snow on the earth, and if there's not enough snow, it creates this lunar halo. I'm looking at my wife like, what the? Where'd that come from? But I'm looking up at it like, God is brilliant. That's what I mean. It changes my thinking now. When I'm outside on a cool day and the breeze is blowing and I'm looking at the sun, I'm not, I don't even know, I can't even think what I used to think about when I was an unbeliever. Like, I don't even know if I recognized it, like, cool, the sun. But now I look at I'm like, my God built that. He made that. He spoke it for his glory and my joy. What will the new creation look like? What will heaven look like? It changes the entire, captures our entire imagination. This is what it means to put on the new self. You make a conscious choice to follow Christ. He gives you a completely new identity. And then you walk it out. And he renews you, and he renews you, and he renews you, and he renews you in the spirit of your mind. And He changes you from the inside out. And it's a lifetime. And if you want to know where we're headed, you can look at Verses 20 and 21, it's the perfect perfectness, the perfectness of Christ. He's the perfect man. That's what we're being made into. That's the end goal. To be made more like Christ. Not more like our culture. To be made more like Christ. That's where joy is found. That's where meaning is found. That's where purpose is found. I'm gonna pray. Father, I thank you for your word, even texts that are difficult like today. Um, I thank you for the joy of digging into it and, and finding more out about you and being able to see Christ in a new way, and see your work in a new way. And I ask, Father, if there are unbelievers in this room, that I ask that they would see the beauty in the face of Christ, that they can't see that without your spirit at work in them, that they're blind their life is meaningless. It's going to end when the earth ends and when, when everything burns up. It's going to end. There's going to be no more meaning. It's not, there's no eternal life to offer them anywhere except in Christ. That Jesus was the perfect man. He died the death that we deserve. to Give us his righteousness, his standing before God. He was perfect so he could make us perfect. And I thank you for that. Pray that you would captivate hearts, you would captivate minds today, that you would regenerate souls, you would bring people from death to life for your name, for your glory, and for our joy. And as we get ready to come to the communion table, Father, that you would remind us that this is your body that was broken for us. That you literally showed I love you this much and you were humble you gave up your life, you breathed your last breath, and you said it is finished. And your blood, the most precious blood, the blood of God, dripped from a rugged wooden cross into the earth. And that blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Precious is the blood of Christ. Precious is the body of Christ. Let us not take this In an unworthy manner, let us be thankful for this means of grace to us today. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.